Hello, and welcome to The Lee Show with me, Lee Bressler. I smell great today, and that made me think of a story from about 14 years ago. You know, I've, I've always uh, enjoyed reading New York Magazine. I started reading it when I was much younger. The quality of the journalism has been up and down over the years. Uh, I think it, right now it's about as good as it's been in a long time. Uh, for a while, they were like a little too obsessively focused on Brooklyn, but um, I think the cultural recommendations are great. I uh, I love that big approval matrix on the last page of the magazine. There's there's a lot to enjoy. It's a good magazine. And in mid two thousand seven, New York Magazine ran a piece about a new Tom Ford cologne that was called Tuscan Leather. The article said that the cologne smells like cocaine. So I was naturally intrigued. And about a month later, I was walking on Madison Avenue with my brother and we passed the Tom Ford store. So I was like, oh, I've heard they have a nice smelling cologne. I was a little vague about it. Let's go check it out. So we walk into the store. We asked to try out the Tuscan leather and the salesperson sprays some on this little cardboard sample thing. It smelled amazing. Like we wafted it into our noses. We loved it. It was very expensive though. So we decided, all right, you know, not for now. We're not going to buy any. We keep walking south on Madison Avenue, and for 20 blocks, we just keep smelling this in our noses, and we're regretting that we hadn't bought it. I mean, it just it, it lingered so pleasantly. So fast forward about six months, my brothers and I walk into Bergdorf Goodman, and they have the cologne. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm going to buy it. And I've worn cologne for my entire adult life. When I was in eighth grade, my mother got me a bottle of Escada Gold for Men, and I still wear it every day. It is my defining scent. I know cologne is not as popular as it used to be, but I love it. And they stopped making the Escada several years ago, so I had to go on eBay and buy up as much as I could. I have it stockpiled in my bathroom under my sink. Also, why do they do that? Like when something's good, why do they stop making it? I don't understand that. Like I have this Kiehl's ointment that I I love. It heals my chapped lips better than anything I've ever tried. They stopped making it. I can't find it anywhere. So also, if you have a, a way of tracking down any Kiehl's vitamin A, D, and E ointment, I would happily pay top dollar for it. So anyways, changing cologne, it's a big deal for me. But I want to give this Tuscan leather a try. So I, I have, uh, you know, I have this weird way that I apply cologne, which is almost instinct for me now, I spray once on my left wrist and then I rub my wrists together. I tap my wrists on the sides of my neck and then I tap them on the sides of my stomach. And then I do another spray on my back over my right shoulder. So one morning before work, I take out the Tuscan leather and I do my normal spritz routine and then I go to work. And while I'm at work, I keep thinking that I smell vomit and I'm worried that I stepped in it, that my shoe has puke on it. And everyone who comes up to me at the office is like, wow, it smells so bad. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's my shoe. But then I realize it's me. I smell awful. This cologne smells like vomit. And it was so strong. I don't know why it was different from the magic that we smelled in the store, but it was unbearable. So obviously I went back to Bergdorf's that week and returned it for a full refund. While we're on the topic of New York Magazine and the approval matrix, you know, that, that page always has a spectrum from highbrow to lowbrow. 
And this week, probably somewhere in the middle, the new Jonathan Franzen book is coming out. And I get that everybody thinks he's middlebrow. I get that I'm supposed to be embarrassed to like his books or that it it makes me seem unsophisticated, but fuck it. I love his books. I thought the corrections was incredible. And I saw tremendous parallels to my own family. The the idea that these grandparents have these weird neuroses and they're terrible parents and they screw up their kids and then their kids are all messed up in different ways, but they swear not to pass the same baggage onto their children. I mean, I, I think for me, there's a, a parallel. My grandparents were weird. They they were overbearing. They screwed up their kids. My parents were weird. And I swore that I would not pass those traits onto my kids. I swore that I would, as the title says, make the corrections. I would break the cycle. I don't know that I've done that, but I try to be cognizant of it. I also loved freedom. I cried near the end when Walter and his wife are reconciling. I loved purity, not quite as much, but I loved it. I think uh, Franzen has this incredible use of language. He has these great insights. And I know it's it's written so that, you know, the, the sort of dummy will feel smart and intelligent because they get it. But whatever, call me unsophisticated if you want. I'm excited about this new book. There's also, there's there's lots of good stuff out right now. The new Karl Ovan Nausgaard novel is out. I'm very excited to dig into it. He's probably my favorite modern author. I read My Struggle. It was incredible. It was influential for me. The way Nausgaard tells stories reminds me a lot of Eddie Murphy. Not because they're funny, right? Obviously, Eddie Murphy is very funny, but because the way he can be deep into a story, and then he goes on this tangent and brings it right back and ties it all together. That was how Eddie Murphy told stories. I I learned to tell stories that way. I had this tape recording of Eddie Murphy's Delirious, and I used to listen to it over and over. The the rhythm of it was incredible. And I saw a lot of that in Nausgaard. You know, there's this one scene in, in my struggle where He's with his family at a three-year-old child's birthday party, and uh, his wife goes to the bathroom, and she gets trapped in there. The, the lock on the door gets jammed. And so they call a locksmith. The locksmith comes, but he has no luck getting the door open. So then it brings up this whole debate about who should be the one to try to break down the door. Should it be Nausgaard because it's his wife in there? Or should it be the owner of the apartment because it's his place? Should it be this other guest of the party who was a boxer and he's very big and strong? And then he goes on to describe this boxer and how they knew each other for like 20 pages. And by that point, the reader has completely forgotten about the party and the bathroom. And then boom, he brings it right back. I saw Nausgaard read from his book, Autumn, several years ago. It was great to hear him. And he he was interviewed in The Guardian recently. And he said that his favorite book is Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. So I'm working on that one right now. I'm only about 40 pages into it so far. And it kind of reminds me of A Little Life, which I thought was very overrated. But so far, Shuggy Bane, I think, is is a little bit better. I picked up a prescription at CVS last week, and I started thinking about how weird the job of pharmacist is. It's like this strange hybrid between being a doctor and being a cashier. And I think it's time that we do another segment of my favorite feature, which I call useless jobs. And so far on the list, we've done 
epidemiologists, we've done college administrators, and I think it's time to add pharmacists to the list. I, I mean, if you rewind like a hundred years, a pharmacist was an important person. They were like some kind of frontline doctor where you'd go to the pharmacist and you'd say like, I have a headache or, or I have nerves or something. And then they'd mix you up some sort of proprietary solution of amphetamines and morphine, or I, I don't know what. And it, it was like being a chemist. And all of these pharmacists had their own proprietary mixtures, but they were chemists. And this this changed, though, when you had this advent of mass market over-the-counter medicines, right? A bottle of aspirin or a bottle of Tylenol. You also had medicines that required prescriptions, right? That became a thing. In 1919, there was a case called the United States versus Dormus, and that allowed the federal government to regulate the dispensing of medications. In 1938, you had the Pure Food and Drug Act that brought the regulation of non-narcotic medications under the responsibility of the FDA. And we've talked a lot about how useless the FDA is, how many bad decisions the FDA has made in the past year, both related and unrelated to COVID. I think Balaji made a good point on the All In podcast last week. It was a great episode. And he talked about how, you know, these regulatory agencies were designed to regulate companies and entities, but they've become outdated because the threats now come from individuals who may be more risk tolerant or harder to track down or harder to, to regulate than companies are. And so I don't know what the regulatory response to to say biohackers is going to be. I'm sure it'll put a damper on things. But anyway, so so back to pharmacists. I wonder how much of the FDA effort to regulate medications was because doctors and pharmacists wanted to create some sort of regulatory barriers to protect their incomes. You know, I would guess that standardization and automation have reduced errors in dispensing medication quite a bit. You know, if you can have a robot weighing and counting and packing medications into vials, why do you need the pharmacist person, right? If a, if a robot is good enough to pack Tylenol into a package, why can't the robot just pack Cipro into a package? I don't get it. You know, when I was in second grade, I had huge behavior problems at school. I'd always been a behavior case, but it got really bad. I had a teacher named Mr. Roddenbush, which is a very unfortunate name. And I, I acted up so much in school. One day we were lining up to go to art class and Mr. Roddenbush was standing there holding a dustbuster. And I yelled loudly without quite knowing what it meant, suck my dick off with that thing. And either he didn't hear me or he ignored me. So again, even louder, I repeated, Suck my dick off with that thing. And this time he couldn't ignore it. So Mr. Roddenbush grabbed me by the arm. He marched me to the principal's office and I got in trouble. They called my parents. It was a big deal. So my parents took me to a psychiatrist to figure out what was wrong with me. And first he prescribed Ritalin. He told my parents I had ADD. He was right about that. I mean, I still do. But my sessions with him, I went to him for like three years. My sessions with him were useless. 
I went to him twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. The school bus would drop me off at his office. I was always like 30 minutes early. So I would sit there reading Calvin and Hobbes comics and I would take Ritalin. I took it twice a day. I didn't know what it was for or how it was supposed to make me feel or how it would help me. I didn't behave any better or any differently. I would go to these sessions with my shrink and he would ply me with snacks, Nestle Crunch Bars and Triscuits and this raspberry zinger tea. And then we'd sit there playing board games like Stratego and Monopoly. And and the Ritalin totally screwed up my appetite because I would take it right after breakfast and then right before lunch. And so I didn't eat lunch for like two years. I was starving by dinner time. I mean, I was so, so scrawny. It was really weird. And then in, in fifth grade, my parents were like, all right, enough. This isn't quite working. They took me to a different psychiatrist. And this one was like, no, he doesn't have ADD. Stop the Ritalin. It still made no difference. My behavior was still a mess. But all along, it did not matter that there was a pharmacist involved in dispensing these medications. And it, it matters even less now, right? Most people get their medications mailed to them. They don't need a pharmacist. It goes just fine. Why does this pharmacist person need to be at CVS? Doesn't this drive up costs in the healthcare system? Side note, though, the pharmacist at the CVS near me is very attractive. She looks like Kristen Ritter, you know, the one who played Jesse Pinkman's girlfriend in Breaking Bad, the one whose dad causes the plane crash, but she's Palestinian. And not just any Palestinian, her dad was sentenced to life in prison for providing financial support to Hamas. But that's okay. We don't judge people based on their families. We are very forgiving at the Lee Show. But I still don't understand why this woman needs to be there to count out my Cialis and dispense it to me. I live in New York City. I've lived here my entire life, I guess, other than when I went away for school. But when I grew up in New York in the 1980s, the city was in bad shape, or at least that's what the pictures and the stories would tell me, right? Everyone was smoking crack. There's hookers everywhere. You couldn't go outside without being mugged. But I didn't experience that as a child. I'm very, very fortunate. And it wasn't because I grew up so wealthy, but it was because my parents kept me very sheltered. The New York City that I knew was my apartment, my grandparents' apartment, my school, my synagogue, my therapist's office, of course. That was about it. I didn't go anywhere else. I think I rode the subway less than 10 times before my 18th birthday. And so people used to ask me what it was like to grow up in New York City. And my answer was, it's probably not that different from growing up very sheltered anyplace else. Uh, we had a car that we kept in the city because my half-sister lived in New Jersey. And so my uh, my father and I would drive out there every weekend to go visit my half-sister and my, my other grandparents. And when we went to New Jersey, we had two important tasks. The first one was grocery shopping. My father was obsessed with grocery shopping. Every year on Father's Day, all he wanted was a new coupon wallet. And on Sundays, he would clip all the coupons in the newspaper circular. He'd organize them in his coupon wallet. Some years he would organize them by product name. Other years it was by category. And we'd go to two or three supermarkets, always looking for the best price on Tropicana orange juice and Nutrigrain bars. There were like all the, these Northeast regional supermarket chains like A&P and Pathmark. We'd go to all of these places looking for these weird 
packaged foods that I grew up eating. The other thing that my dad was obsessed with that we did regularly was wash our car. We had a Mazda 626, which was a pretty basic car, but my father always wanted it to be in good shape and to look nice. So we would hand wash it. We'd, we'd dry it with this chamois cloth. We'd wax it. We'd polish it. And then when we'd come home, we'd drive through the Lincoln Tunnel. And you know, there's this dividing line halfway through the tunnel that shows the border between New York and New Jersey. And every time we'd go through the tunnel, there was this game we would play in my family. And by the way, if you ever drive through the Lincoln Tunnel with me, we still play this. So you better be on the lookout. So each time we'd drive through, we would each try to distract the rest of our family so that we could be the first to see that dividing line. And when you spotted it, you would yell out, I see it first. And when I would win, when I was younger, I would taunt my sister. I'd be like, that's 4,674,291 for me. And three for you. And I remember little flashes of the grittiness of New York City. Like we'd emerge from the Lincoln Tunnel and these squeegee men would try to spray some filthy liquid on the windshield and then they'd rub it off with a dirty newspaper. And this is always right after we'd cleaned the car. And there were, there were no chain stores in the city yet. There was no Starbucks. There weren't bank branches on every corner. It felt a lot more idiosyncratic. It felt interesting. The data tells us that it was also much less safe. Crime rates were higher. And throughout the country over the last, I don't know, 30 years, crime rates have been declining. And the reasons I'm sure are myriad. That's not the point of this. But one thing that I believe matters is local governance. In 1990, David Dinkins became the mayor of New York City. And I know opinions about Dinkins are mixed. Some think he was successful. I would posit that he was not a successful mayor. New York City has so many powerful people and powerful groups, people who are used to getting their way all the time. And Dinkins' disposition was to say yes to everything and everyone. That was his starting point, to please everyone. And in a city with powerful groups that are used to getting what they want, you can't say yes to everything. Because if you do, you'll give away the farm. Rudy Giuliani took over as mayor in 1993. And Giuliani seemed to relish being a jerk. He relished saying no to everyone. I think that was a big part of what made him successful. He was willing to take on all of these powerful interest groups, the unions, the city employees, the schools, everyone. And he seemed to enjoy fighting with all of them. One of Giuliani's major projects was to reduce homelessness in the city. And his approach was not kind, but it worked. You know, it's not well known, but Giuliani relied on busing. He would round up homeless people and he'd put them on a Greyhound bus to somewhere far away, usually somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. And these homeless people were told that when they arrived, they could go to like a Western Union office and they'd be given $500. And that was enough money to incentivize them to go all the way there. And once they were there, they were far enough away that they didn't come back. So all of these cities took in huge homeless populations and it became their problem. And under Giuliani, the population sleeping in New York City shelters every night 
dropped from about 10,000 to about 6,000. That's a big decline, 40%. And it stayed at that level for almost 10 years until the financial crisis started to weigh on the economy and there was more homelessness and unemployment. I think Bloomberg was also an incredibly successful mayor because he could say no to powerful groups, not because he relished the fight, but because he wasn't in hock to anyone. He didn't have to fundraise. He didn't owe anyone any favors. He could do what he believed in. And he was good at figuring out how to make rational decisions. And under these two mayors, New York City thrived, even after September 11th happened, even as all the naysayers said that New York City was dead. Under de Blasio, it is the opposite. I call him de Lazio because I think he really is quite lazy. And his starting disposition, just like Dinkins, is to say yes to everyone. He doesn't have the backbone for a fight. And he is so in hock to his donors that it borders on corruption. No surprise, under DeLazio, New York City has not gotten better. The quality of life has degraded. There are homeless all over the streets. This is not kind to them. There are entire streets that have been taken over by junkies, by bums. As a former junkie myself, I am compassionate and empathetic to the needs of addicts. But leaving them to have entire streets next to Penn Station where they can sort of hover in an opiate-induced haze, that doesn't help anybody. de Blasio is awful at his job. So now, presumably, Eric Adams is going to be elected as the next mayor, and my hopes for him are very high. The city has many problems that need urgent attention, and I get the sense that he understands them and he's intent on fixing them. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed, I'm optimistic, and we'll see. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify. They'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players. And you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The new Sopranos movie is out. I watched it. uh, The many stains of Newark. The many taints of Newark. Many underpants stains of Newark. I don't know. Whatever the fuck it's called, it is not a good movie. And maybe I'm not the right person to judge. I I also thought The Sopranos was overrated after the first season. You know, we've talked uh, here about shows that are good, but then they're like, let's make more. And I don't know that The Sopranos was entirely that, but it kind of was. You know, we've talked about how the best stories are being told now in miniseries form rather than in movies. And I, I think this was a good example of that. Frankly, I think the whole Sopranos, like, you know, if you watched all six seasons, it's about 87 hours. I don't know that if you made The Sopranos now that it needs to be 87 hours. I bet the optimal length for telling that story, for the character development, 
is probably like 10 to 20 hours. And you could have made this prequel kind of better, I guess, but this did nothing. This many stains of Newark did nothing to advance our understanding of any of the characters in the show. It has no coherent plot. It relies on tired stereotypes. These actors just seemed like they were doing caricatures of their later selves. And, and in my opinion, you know, the best part of The Sopranos was the idea of exploring how this tough guy character was emotionally troubled and how he dealt with this anger and how his mother had screwed him up and, and the things he did that were both productive and unproductive to deal with the anger, how therapy helped him, how he had this descent into darkness and became sort of irredeemable. That was interesting. It was innovative. But this movie, it's sort of, it, there's no focus to it. It talks about the, the relationship between Italians and Blacks in Newark in the 1960s and 70s, which, I mean, it's just a tired old trope about how the Italians were racist. We know that. It also completely ignores the Jewish presence in Newark. You know what, what Philip Roth wrote about, he told that story very well. And, and I loved Portnoy's complaint. I loved American Pastoral. I also think Philip Roth only had one story to tell and he just kept repeating it over and over in all of his books. So I got kind of bored of them, but he told that one story very well. And if you look up the Substack for this episode, you'll see that I included my favorite excerpt from American Pastoral. I, I highly recommend you read it. It's at the end of the Substack. I think the highlight of this new movie was was the the mistress character Michela Michela De Rossi. You know, she was she shows her tits on on screen. She looked great. I, I don't know. The rest of it was just dumb. I couldn't tell you the plot of the movie if I tried. There's like a young Tony Soprano. There's Christopher Moltisanti's dad. There's this race riot. Moltisanti's dad, by the way, my, my parallel would be that it was the story of Reuben from the book of Genesis. I just happened to have reread that last week. I was in synagogue. I was bored and I reread the story of Jacob and his children. And Reuben was Jacob's son. And then he goes and fucks his dad's concubine to assert his manliness. And that was kind of the, 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 the story of this new Sopranos movie. My brilliant friend from high school, Steph DeLuca, made some great points about this. She said that it, it came across as a student film and it was so random and it really was. Also, side note, why hasn't Steph been uh, on the podcast as a guest yet? I think we need to, to get her on here. Look, is our entire culture now just pastiche? Do we have any new stories to tell? Why is everything a prequel or a sequel? And maybe that seems safe if you're a studio and you want to take your intellectual property and leverage it. Maybe that's what Disney does with everything. But it's Drek. I love Top Gun. Does it need a sequel? Can't we just leave it as like the, the most outstanding piece of gay cinema? How, what are the odds that the new Top Gun movie is going to be the exact same story as the prior one, just with younger actors. That's what they did with the Star Wars sequels, right? Remember that Disney made that terrible episode seven. It was just a remake of the original movie. It was total chazerai. Anyways, thank you for listening. Please become a paid subscriber. Thank you to 
my current subscribers. Check out my Substack for more content, leebressler.substack.com. You can look me up on Instagram, on Twitter, and I will be back with more soon.